save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, I welcome back John Landre, cougar behaviorist and ecologist for over 30 years. To understand our discussion today, previously John and I discussed the issues of wildlife management in the USA. The majority of our state and federal agencies' management decisions on our public lands are based upon game species, those that hunters want to harvest for their desires and needs, that is, either food or trophy or sport, leading to the ubiquitous and unsustainable harvesting by game agencies, including killing contests arranged by private uh, sponsors and approved by state and federal agencies to remove these very predators that we most need in our wild landscapes. They help shape the condition of not only the ungulate herds, but of the ecosystems themselves. And of these carnivores, we focus on the American idols, the wolf and the ghost cat, puma con color, and the efforts to rewild them back into our western and most importantly, our eastern landscapes. So welcome back, John. Thank you. Glad to be back. I'm glad to have you here. So we've got a lot of critical points to address regarding cougars and wolves going back into the eastern landscapes before we can really even address the whole concept of rewilding and understand what that is. So um, from... Research, mountain lions in the United States face so many threats, not the least which are the management policies that we discussed last time, which don't seem overly concerned about their survival. So um, let's talk a little bit about these hunting quotas for mountain lions, how they keep going up every year, and while we're pretty sure that the populations are healthy and growing, it's the uncertainty that agonizes we conservationists in this sort of sleight of hand of management for game versus management of or mismanagement of game species and all the other non-game species, critically, are carnivores. Well, first of all, in terms of, in terms of the management of... Um uh, well, we'll we'll stick with cougars um, right now, mountain lions. Uh, the um, the main problem we have, as you mentioned, is that we really don't know how many are out there, and they they do do a quite a sleight of hand. That is, they say uh, we don't know how many are out there, but I'm sure, we're sure there's enough. Uh, and in fact, there's there's too many, and so then they start increasing the quotas and and um, you know trying to say that they need to kill more of these animals. And then, of course, they, they provide the, as I mentioned last time, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse for, for the reasons. Human safety, um, livestock safety, um, the um, wild, you know, game species safety, and then, of course, they're just going to overrun the landscape, which is impossible. But, but and they always fall back on those, but as we, we discussed last time, there really aren't any uh, 
reasons to hunt any predator simply because they are pretty much self-controlled. That is, they are limited. More and more science indicates that they're limited by the number of prey that are out there. Prey go up, uh, more but more babies, uh, predator babies survive. The predator population goes up. Prey go down for other reasons, and we find then that the then more predator babies starve. And so I saw that in my study with mountain lions, and it's it, it's pretty typical that happens. And so what we find is that um, the all of the, to me all of the policies that they have for managing or hunting uh, predators really it really are are not based in science. They're based on supposition. They're based on myths and, and, and misconceptions. Uh, and this really does extend into the these killing contests that we have. This, the idea that we should foster and encourage the basically wanton killing of native wildlife is just repugnant to me. It's it sure for my my perspective it, it violates um, some of the more important uh, tenets of the North American con- model for conservation, of wildlife conservation, and um, and it's just wrong. I mean, we shouldn't be killing animals just to kill them. Uh, the you know, hunters specifically state, well, we 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 hunt for food. No, when it comes to predators, they hunt to kill, and they use as these unfounded justifications of safety, et cetera, to to say, look, we're doing something good, and but they're not. What it boils down to is that they're they are indeed fulfilling some innate urge to kill. The, the trophy hunter sy- syndrome: you kill the biggest, you kill the most, you um, just to kill, and so. It's these types of things that have been that have been um, um, driving wildlife man- predator management in this in this country. So let's let's stop here a second and discuss a little more. Our hunters, conservationists, they use. We all hear the argument that hunting is has a conservation motive. If hunting has a conservation motive, it is, it is very very minor. Uh, one of the one of the things that they they uh, put up as an example of uh, hunting being conservation is all of the land that that they set aside. For example, Ducks Unlimited is, is set aside millions of acres for the ducks to shoot them, uh, and they say, "Sure, we're shooting them, but look at all, all the other wildlife that's benefiting from them." That benefit is minimal simply because these lands are managed for for duck production, and again, the predators get hit if there's any indication that there's predators feeding on these ducks, they get eliminated. And so um, the conservation efforts or ideas that hunters have really don't, um, they don't hold any weight simply because uh, they will sacrifice the rest of the ecosystem simply for the, the one main management goal of all game management in this country, and that is more game in the bag. And we, we see that happening now. You know, not only cattle and livestock production on our public lands, which we addressed in our previous episode, but um, the ungulates. So one of them is the desert bighorn sheep. I was shocked to learn when I heard about the desert bighorn sheep survival plan to bring up more of the desert bighorn sheep. I thought it was because we were losing them and the carnivores, the mountain lions, were suffering as a result. And then I found out, no, we're creating these um, populations of desert bighorn sheep for hunters. So 
what what ends just a little side note here what ends up happening when the hunters harvest and we can talk about that word a little bit um according to the tags they get and the permits and the quotas and the numbers set by the game agencies what happens to these populations and is there enough left for the carnivores well, that's the that's the the, the, the key to it all. Again, the, the their idea of conservation is that they're they're bringing back some of these these endangered species like the bighorn, uh, and they say so. So what? It's we're bringing them back to to, to shoot them. Uh, that we're bringing them back, but at the expense of everything else. Uh, their their one conservation plus is negated by their many conservation minuses in terms of of uh, predator control and. Uh, um, trying to reduce the, the competition for forage on the range and all these types of things. It just um, They take one tiny step forward in conservation and, and many um, large steps backwards. And so in this particular case, um, they, they do regulate the, uh, the number of animals that are killed. Obviously, they're just after the, the, the big male uh, bighorn sheep. And uh, and they sell these these tags for tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, um, for the bighorn population itself, they're probably not in too much danger from human hunting. However, it still doesn't answer the, the question, the problem of bringing these sheep back to areas where they were uh, extirpated for various reasons. One was incompatibility with domestic sheep. Another is that. Um, because of fire suppression, uh, the areas that, that these sheep have lived in become more uh, brushy and, and indeed do, do increase the probability that they'll be killed by, by predators. And so they, they just don't see the whole picture. They just see they have blinders on and all they see is more game in the bag. So are these numbers of hunting harvested animals, are they included at all? In um, obviously not in the game management uh, species, but the science. Uh, when we dis- when we discuss the science of what you do, are the numbers of prey species taken included in the, the scientific research of the pressure usually, on them, the carnivores? Usually, usually simply because uh, that that is a source of mortality. And um, and it does indeed just as they they use it to calculate, you know whether they're they're killing too many of them. Um, other scientists will use it and say, well, this is this is you know that this is a section of mortality that needs to be considered. And again, it is um, it is as you mentioned, um, it can get to the point where um, either the hunters are taking more and leaving the predators less, or they're Hunters don't think they're taking enough, and, and the predators are taking more, and so they kill the predators. And so it's um, it it's just a it's a sort of an, it's an insane kind of ecological uh, insanity. It is. It's, it's like I say. It, it's it it is because of this uh, single focus uh, management strategy. Uh, they talk about um, target populations of these ungulates which are usually much higher than they should be on the range to begin with, but, but they look at it in terms of satisfying the needs of the hunters. You know, they have so many, so many hunters in the state, and they figure it out. Um, what's the, you know, if we want to, 
have these hunters have a certain percentage of success, then we need to have these many deer on the landscape. It's all very mechanical and very, very, uh, that's like ranching. Well, let's let's talk about this a little bit. The we mentioned it. We kind of slid over it. The predator killing contests—they're being banned in many places. And organizations like Mountain Lion Foundation, Cougar Rewilding Foundation, and um, Predator Defense, and uh, Project Coyote—they're doing a lot of work on highlighting the immorality of these predator killing contests. Let's. Let's talk about them a little bit. Okay, and it really is immoral when you talk about it in terms of hunting. I, I used to hunt. I used to kill animals for food. Um, I never killed them just for the sport of it. But the uh, the idea that you um, band together and try to kill as many of a, of a native species as possible just to kill them, it's just... Um, it's absurd. It's just I, I don't understand that mentality all, at all. Uh, and indeed, uh, more and more they are being banned because they are uh, they are immoral. It's we shouldn't be killing native species, not only just the predators, but uh, there's a whole list of species called vermin. Uh, most of them native species that uh, game departments have decided that they don't need to to keep people from killing. Uh, they, as many and, as they want. And they include prairie dogs. Prairie dogs, um, ground squirrels, all kinds of you know, crows. It, 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 I think it's still on the books. They, they went to protect crows in Minnesota uh, from wanton killing. And so they wrote the law saying that um, you shouldn't kill crows for at certain times unless they're doing or about to do damage. <laughs> and you go... Well, how do you tell if a crow is about to do damage? Do they have a certain glint in their eye or what? It was, it was a, an escape clause for shooting them and saying, oh, yeah, they were about, they're about to, to eat, my, eat my corn. And, and just these types of things, that, this, the, um, just the killing, the killing. And, and it, it, I'm, I'm convinced it's, it's a way that the game agencies have placated the hunters for their loss of what they were able to do before uh, the Great Awakening, when the hunters killed as as much, many as they could, as often as they could, um, they plus other many others uh, reined them in, well, and of course this, they had to do something, and so they said, "Well, you can still kill these animals whenever you want." Well, we've got two points to consider here. All these quote unquote vermin species are what our mesocarnivores eat. Wolves, bobcats, um, foxes, uh, mountain lions, when the large carnivores are not available. And then it's sort of the mowing the lawn sledgehammer effect of wiping out carnivores in the hopes that ungulates, game species, will increase. But meanwhile, there's a vacuum created so let's talk about this vacuum that's created in actuality, the science of when you wipe out, like a killing contest, all the coyotes, all the wolves, all the bobcats, all the, the prairie dogs, all the vermin over a weekend, as much as you can, these populations tend to explode, don't they? They tend to come back. Um, and we know coyotes will re- reproduce more when they're... When they're um uh, when humans kill more of them, 
Um, Expl- that- explain why. So our, well, our listeners understand why. There's a couple of factors. One is that it, um, <laughs> I guess you'd see it in humans. You put, a, you put a couple of humans on an island and they're going to have 10, 12 kids. Simply because there's room for them. Okay. Room. So part of it is because the, um, you, you open up space. And so what we find is that, um, that the amount of resources that are available can affect the number of, um, of young that, that any animal gives. That's why or any animal uh, produces simply because that's, that's the controlling factor. Uh, so when, when you wipe them out, you're creating space in terms, in the perspective of the carnivore, to, there's more room, there's more space, and yeah. therefore they can have more young because the resources are there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Basically. Okay. So um, we're at a point where we could uh, take a little break here, and then okay. we're going to um, talk a lot more about the Cougar Rewilding Foundation and what rewilding is and what's going on in some of the history of that. So stick with us, folks, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. 
And welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World. And my guest, John Laundrie, a cougar biologist, excuse me, cougar ecologist and behaviorist. He's run one of the longest studies on cougars, 17 years, and has been studying carnivores, wolves, uh, cougars, and uh, bighorn sheep, and several bobcats all of them uh and ran one of the uh, longest studies 17 years and he's been doing this for 30 years so john in the last section we left off with the killing contest and what happens when you remove suddenly a bunch of carnivores from the landscape so let's talk about not only we, we discussed why this is immoral from a ethical standpoint but let's talk about it from the ecological standpoint the importance of predators especially top predators okay and when we look at how ecosystems function um, they function on what we commonly term energy flow energy comes from the sun it goes to the plants plants go to the herbivores the herbivores to the first carnivores the second carnivores etc so that energy flows through the system and eventually leaves it this is how the world works. Um, anytime you go in and you disrupt any one of those particular levels, you disrupt the whole system. In this particular case, if you remove the top carnivores, then what we find is it's it is kind of like taking a uh, a pine tree and cutting off its leader. What's going to happen is that all the branches below this leader are just going to bunch up, and you have a profusion of um, of some of these other trophic levels. Primarily, in this case, the the um, the primary consumers, which are the plant eaters, and they tend to, you know, evolutionarily, they, they were controlled uh, by the predators. And so you remove that control, and you find that that, that um, they create tremendous number of problems in the ecosystem, primarily in terms of overusing uh, their plant resources, um, which then impacts other species that t- would tend to use those resources, say, for nesting habitat. Um, all these types of things. There, to me, there's no no surprise that uh, ground nesting birds in the east are are suffering simply because there's there's not enough ground cover. Uh, the deer are eating it all, and so it's these types of, of um, disruptions of the of the system that um, are caused when you remove uh, any predator. It's you know smaller predators, smaller effects. You may not see them as much, but they're there. Larger predators, larger effects, and um, and that's that is basically what has happened. Uh, to uh, we, we've documented this in a variety of different areas. Uh, the um, Kaibab Peninsula or uh, Plateau in Arizona, uh, where they removed the, the, the predators and had deer and elk explode and, and die off. Uh, Isle Royale, where moose were fluctuating up and down, up and down, uh, crashing and, and uh, growing until the wolves came over and, and stabilized the system. It's, and so we know that, wolf, that predators have a stabilizing effect on ecosystems. Um, and so when we, we remove them, uh, we disrupt that stability, and, we, and it produces all of the problems that we, we commonly see. Wow. So um, let's – the biggest thing we need to point out right now is that in our management or mismanagement, as we discussed last time, that it's really time to change the paradigm totally – and develop a truly wildlife conservation model that includes hunting, but not be dominated, which we discussed last time, that all our 
game and non-game is managed primarily for game species. And we discussed the North American model of wildlife conservation. So um, you've also written several books on this subject and many papers, and you have a blog. So let's talk about um, what will what will happen. So maybe we can start, since we're talking about rewilding, let's explain what rewilding is. I think some people think it's going back to um, bringing back the mastodon, which or the elephants, or the cheetah. It's not necessarily that. It's bringing back these carnivores where we've removed them, right? Yes. It, you know, one can carry rewilding as far back as you want, uh, and some people have. In fact, the original rewilding ideas encompassed just what you mentioned, bringing back some of these these long-extinct um, um, megafauna that, that existed uh, in, in North America. But it's really... And that, that distracts from the whole concept of rewilding. Um, if we put rewilding on a more recent level, uh, we can't, you know, we can go back as far as we want. Um, and I think we should, we should really go back as far as um, when Europeans first came over. In terms of what was here when, when Europeans came over, what did we lose, uh, and can we, can we bring those, those, those particular species back? And so rewilding then, um, under that context, uh, is one is basically I think what, what drives the um, uh, recuperation of species under the Endangered Species Act. We we brought back uh, bald eagles. We brought back prairie and falcons. Uh, that that in itself is, is also rewilding, bringing back some of those players of the ecosystem that that occurred within uh, within our recent memory. And so, um, uh, in that sense, then um, what we're looking at is trying is where were these large predators, uh, and where can they, um, why are they gone, and can we return? So let's talk about that um, in, in terms of the cougar. We have them in the West. They're, they seem to be very well um, known to be occupying the West from Mexico all the way up to Canada. And then there's sort of a bottleneck when we hit the Dakotas. Um, and that was covered a lot in uh, Will Stolson's book, Heart of a Lion, following the one Connecticut lion that was killed in uh, Connecticut on, on by a car. And through DNA and camera trap saplings, they ended up being able to find this whole lion's two-year journey. So what happens that mountain lions are not in the east and how do we go about bringing them back and we'll discuss the several points of that first of all they're, they're not in the east because um, when uh, the European immigrants arrived at this country uh, for a variety of reasons from climate wanting to change the climate to wanting to get rid of competitors um, for the um, for everything uh, they they pretty much um, uh, destroyed the eastern ecosystem. There was at one time when there was no forest left. It's hard to imagine today, but they had clear-cutted most of the east, uh, most of the eastern forests. And along with that, obviously, a, a lot of the species, or especially the larger ones, disappeared. They disappeared because they were being killed off for food. Uh, they disappeared because they were being killed off because we felt they were dangerous, such as the predators, wolves, and, and uh, cougars. Uh, for a variety of reasons. 
And so, and that that repeated itself as as um, immigrants moved further to the west. It was it we we basically. Um, created a path of destruction of wildlife in general, um, starting at the Atlantic Ocean and ending at the Pacific Ocean. And it happened in a couple of waves. So the first wave, I, I believe, if my history is correct, happened in around the 1600s. And we came over, and as you said, we deforested everything and turned what was once woods and forest and deer and beaver into a clear-cut landscape for farming. And then uh, when we ran out of the beaver, that sort of reshaped the continental U.S. and all the commercial um, fishing, hunting, and everything. So it kind of died out. And then there was a second wave of colonization that went a bit further west into our Great Plains area and our, our Midwest that we Discuss. They never really got to the far west until much later, and um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. And just as a a, a clue here, there's a fabulous book, and um, I don't know if you've read it or not, "Nature Wars" by Jim Sturba, that he talks a lot about this, and that the East is now reforested. Mm-hmm. So there is. The East is, go ahead. The East is reforested. Fortunately, it was resilient enough. That it uh, it grew back, and with it, some some of the species returned. Uh, some species were actually returned by humans, primarily the the ungulates, the deer, and now the elk, um, because again because of the the hunting reasons. And so the east um, east is is kind of a uh, a paradox. It's it's a uh, it looks nice and green and and wild, but it, it's missing some of its most important species, and these are the top carnivores. And, and indeed, it's, it's suffering for that. It's actually uh, on a decline again as these um, large ungulates tend to strip uh, strip the uh, the plants from the uh, from the landscape. And so, it's the uh, the sequence that we see when we we move from east to west is that indeed the first thing to, to go are the, the large ungulates and their predators. Uh, for example, in the Great Plains, um, we killed off millions and millions of, bi- of bison just bring, for a variety of reasons. One was to subdue the, the Native Americans. Uh, this, was a, this was a military strategy. Uh, but obviously this, when you, as we mentioned before, when you remove the prey, you remove the predator. Um, and, and there were there were uh, cougars in the Midwest uh, originally, but as I mentioned in my book, uh, the um, Phantoms, uh, Phantoms of the Prairie. Phantoms of the Prairie. Uh, the um, they were really indeed river cats, simply oh. because they they lived along the rivers where the where there was where there was cover for them. They couldn't really hunt the millions of, of ungulates out on the open prairie. That's that's where the wolves and the and the humans were. And so um, there weren't really many of them there at, uh, at any given time, but they were there. And so they were fairly easy to, to eliminate. And with the change in habitat um, to farmland, and um, what we find now is that the, uh, the reason we don't have um, mountain lions moving back east readily is because there's this, there's this huge barren area, that the Great Plains, that acts as a barrier simply because um, it's very difficult for these animals to move through. There's, they're, 
are a lot of areas where they can't um, can't live, and uh, and the female for for cougars because they don't move as a pair. Um, for the females to move, they move generationally. That is, they'll uh, they'll only move as far as they have to, um, and then you have to wait until those areas are filled with 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 cougars before they move again. And so you have to generational times for them to kind of step stone across the prairie. And depending on where there's, if there's enough habitat for them to do that, they may or may not be able to do it. Uh, males, on the other hand, they, when they disperse, they're looking for females. And as we saw with the Connecticut cat, they'll go thousands of miles looking for females, um, all in the wrong places, obviously. And so what we find is that, uh, that, the Great Plains does present a very formidable barrier for the movement of, of cats from the west to the east. So when you say it's barren, it's not barren of life. It's barren of cover and the of habitat cover. that mountain yes. lions in particular need. Yes, a, a basically of hunting habitat for mountain lions. So, I mean, there's plenty, there's plenty of, of, of deer, that's for sure. They've got millions of deer out there. And nowadays there's a ton of human habitation in the way. So these dispersing males have to pick their way through a maze of human habitation, lack of cover, and where a female might be. Well, they. So, okay, I have a question. If we don't have the females moving east and we have the males moving east, how do we get. I guess this leads into rewilding. How do we get the males to find females on this journey eastward. We bring them to them. Uh-huh. Let's talk about that. The, um, it's, there, there are two possible ways that cats can return to these. One is through um, recolonization. And that is, um, as we've mentioned, eventually they move across the Great Plains and, and, and um, set up um, new populations in the east. This is highly unlikely simply because, as we mentioned before, the difficulties for females to move across these, these, these ex- extensive areas. Um, the other way is to actually jumpstart the whole system and uh, with what we commonly refer to as reintroductions, where we reintroduce the species into its, its former um, range. And um, coolers would be very easy for that. I mean, you, the ideal way to do it would be to to catch about four or five females that you know are pregnant, um, bring bring them to, to a, a um, location in the east. Uh, they won't go very far because they're pregnant, and they're pretty sure they'll have kittens. And then um, once those kittens get old enough, then you bring in a, a, a male, and and you'll have a population started in, in one generation. Wow, this is this is really cool. So um, we need to step away for a break, and we're going to come back and talk about recolonization and how it can happen and the challenges facing it. So folks, stick with us. We'll be right back. Meanwhile, check out Cougar Rewilding Foundation, of which John is on the board. Um, check out Mountain Lion Foundation, and uh, who we talked with Lynn Cullens and Corinna DeVore previously, and check out the Facebook pages of all these organizations and we're going to talk more Cougar when we come back.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back, Our Wild World. I'm Ellie Weiss, and my guest is John Landre. So uh, between our last episode and so far what we've covered today, we've covered game mismanagement, that it's all about the game species and very weighted against our carnivores, and how we continue to go about stripping our landscapes of our apex carnivores, in this case of what we're discussing today, mountain lions. And now we're at the point of how we can rewild our carnivores into our landscape. So here in the West, we see the wolves, and I know there's wolves back East, and all the associated problems and arguments and myths related to having wolves in our landscape by the hunting community, the livestock ranchers, etc. And um, we're talking about recolonizing the East with mountain lions. So right at the end there of our last section, John, we talked about reintroduction. So let's let's cover this from like a to z why we can re- reintroduce them into these the east the habitat and then we'll go into the challenges we'd face doing that okay i think as we as you mentioned the the forest has grown back in the east and 
with uh, human help, so have the have the ungulates returned. Uh, the deer are now are now growing populations of elk, and so the food base is there and the and the cover is there. Uh, the east is not as uh, settled as one would think. Uh, we have uh, lots of big cities and things like that, but we have also have a lot of uh, forested areas. We have a lot of uh, national parks, a lot of, a lot of uh, state and, and national forests, uh, and so there's plenty of habitat. Um, in the the uh, current book I'm working on, uh, Guardians of the Forest, uh, the return of both wolves and cougars to the east, I discuss and look at uh, those particular uh, ideas. That is, is the east uh, can we can they survive back there? Because that was been that's been a big discussion um, and a red herring that a lot of people have thrown out. They now know these animals are animals of the wilderness, and we don't have in the wilderness in the east, so they can't come back. But we know they're not the animals of the wilderness because we have cougars living in in L.A. Um, we have wolves that uh, can easily be uh, seen um, and heard uh, in um, less wild areas. And so there's a tremendous amount of habitat out there. And it's just a matter of then um, identifying some of the better places for, for us to uh, bring, bring these animals back um, rather than um, wishfully wait for them to, to make it across the Great Gauntlet of the, of the Great, Plain, Great Plains. And so what we find is that uh, the, the ability to do it is the, the Presence of well, obviously the presence of cats. We have cats that we can um, easily bring in from any other. In fact, some states say, "Well, if you want, you if you want, we'll give you some." So, okay, <laughs> let's take them. So um, rather than hunt them, well, catch, catch hunt. them. They'll, yeah, they'll still hunt them. But yes, there's there are populations that we can get cats from. Uh, another red herring that people have thrown up is that well, that's not the eastern cougar. Well, the eastern cougar never existed. It was uh, they were. Um, genetic work has shown that, that all the cats across North America were pretty much the same subspecies. And so um, uh, we can get rid of that, that particular objection. There really is no biological objection for uh, bringing back either wolves or, or cougars to the east. Uh, it can be done. We've, we saw how successful re, uh, reintroducing wolves was to the east. As I mentioned, uh, reintroducing cougars would be, I think, very, very easy if you understand cougar biology at all. And so it's, um, it's something that I think would be uh, quite easily done. Uh, the, the tricky part is, again, the, our, the social will to do it. Uh, because these people in the East have lived for so long without these large predators, and because they believe everything that the, the hunters and the, and, uh, the uh, anti-predator people say, uh, they, they indeed believe those, those dangers of human safety, uh, prey safety and ungulate safety, or and uh, livestock safety. Again, we study after study um, has shown that the uh, level of predation on domestic livestock is very, very low. Uh, there are a lot more other dangers out there for uh, a man, a, a person's sheep or cattle. Uh, the idea that uh, we need to kill these animals and not bring them back so that we have more deer obviously is again because of the mismanagement and the single focus of more game in the bag type mentality and again the, the dangers for to humans is, is minimal um, as I think we mentioned last time uh, we, we face many more threats out there um, every day when we walk out uh, in fact 
one of the biggest threats in the East Coast, again, is deer car collisions. There are thousands of people who are getting injured. Um, oh, oh, 200 or more people die every year from, car, from hitting deer. And in fact, there was a study done in, in uh, South Dakota demonstrating that indeed, um, for every reduction of deer population by a certain amount, um, you would save so many lives and obviously so much damage. Uh, we think it, we think just in money, so much damage for uh, for these accidents. And so this, there, the reasons not to bring them back are don't exist. They're, they're believed, but they're inaccurate. But the trick, obviously, then, is convincing people that indeed uh, they are inaccurate, especially when in the in a um, atmosphere where um, reason is thrown out the window and um, your beliefs are more important than than what uh, the the facts are actually telling you. Well, but we have to keep, we have to continue trying. Let's let's talk about this for a minute. You know the sensationalized headlines: lion attack. There haven't been overall in our history to date, modern history, of many lion attacks on people. Yes, there have been some, but let, let's talk about that a little bit because this is one of the big fears of people. And, you know, we often think of the East as um, small pockets of wildness versus the West where th- there's huge vast landscapes that lions can inhabit where there are no people. So the east is, you know, woods. And people have created a suburbia in the woods, living out here, and we work from internet and all of that rather than city centers. So what is the fear based on of, you know, lions living in the forest and lurking around your house ready to take your pets and your children well it's 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 based upon you know just the that fear alone it's it, for some reason um we we rank how people die relative to how horrible we think it is obviously we have no problem with thirty thousand people dying in car accidents every year we have no problem with with almost an equal number of, of people getting killed being killed with guns with no problem whatsoever in fact we we, um, you know, just, but yet when we have, you know, one out of every 10 years, someone gets killed by a mountain lion, it, it makes, I guess because, it, because it's so rare, it does make news. But again, it's, um, well, if, it lights up our, our reptilian brain of fear, fear of the dark, fear of the carnivore, fear of being eaten. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose it just—it's um, unfounded, obviously, because we, we just don't have that much to fear from them. So, uh, and, and of course, when we we look at the plus side, uh, what we find is that um, in the East Coast, there's a lot of people who suffer from Lyme disease. Lyme disease is, is rampant in the East, mainly because there's too many deer, because it's spread with uh, by the deer tick. And the deer are getting more and more into the ha- human habitat areas, so they're closer, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Okay. And, and all, all indications are that, that uh, the deer population is just, is just too high in the east. It's, uh, it's an epidemic, and it's showing all of these different things that we see in epidemics. That is, uh, increased uh, diseases such as wasting, chronic wasting disease, uh, increasing transmission of other diseases like Lyme disease. 
um, obviously the the um, uh, impact that they're having on the on the, the environment. All of these things indicate that we we that the East is indeed heading for a, a major uh, crash in deer populations. Um, and people are going to shake their heads and say, "Well, how can that be? Because the forest is still green." I actually, I actually saw this in a in what was supposed to be a scientific article, where they said they couldn't figure out. They they dismissed the the idea that uh, the deer population was declining because of lack of food because the forest was still green. <laughs> and you go, well, yeah, look at that green. How much of that green is actually food that that they can eat? Right. And so you go, just those types of things that that the whole. I guess you would say the whole ungulate e- ecology uh, relative to game, game management is so centered on trying to find excuses for why we should have more deer and more ungulates on the landscape that they dismiss a lot of the, the very sound science that exists that shows that it's just not right. Well, since I have a cougar ecologist and behaviorist right here, I'd like to learn a little bit of how cougars hunt, which might dispel some of our human fear of having them as neighbors and coexist, co- coexisting with them. Can You studied them for decades. Mm-hmm. How, they're, they're smart animals. I kind of compare them to the leopard. They're usually solitary, I think, and they're very clever. They kind of solve problems and think ahead. So often when we see the lion, the lion has been watching us for a very long time. Tell us a little bit about looking through the eyes of a cougar and how they see the landscape. Well, how they see the landscape is, is opportunities for, um, for catching prey. That is, they look at it in terms of, is, this, is there enough cover? Uh, would I be able to, first of all, see my prey so there's not too much cover? And then if I do see it, would I be able to sneak up on it? And that's basically what they do. They, they tend to hunt the edges um, where they, they can see out into the openings. And, and if they see deer, then they kind of wait and try to anticipate where those deer are going to uh, move as they move from one point to another. Uh, and then try to position themselves close enough. We, we think it's about within 20 meters of, um, of their prey before they attack. Anything longer than that, the prey usually can outrun them. And then, uh, then they once they get to that point, they 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 attack. They if they're lucky enough, they're able to, to uh, jump up on the onto the back of the animal, and then usually by either biting them in the throat or just breaking their necks, uh, they die. Uh, the episodes where I saw cougar and deer tracks come together in the snow in my studies, uh, it it was only ten yards or more before they, the the cougar was dragging the deer away. So they're pretty efficient once they get the right uh, conditions, um, and so they are—they are, they are uh, ambush predators. This might think that well, geez, we do need to be afraid of them more, but not necessarily simply because they—they—they they, they don't like us. <laughs> well, that—that's you know, sort of been proven with the one collared cat in California with the recent fires that. It died. I'm not. I don't know the final necropsy results, but it had the choice to go into where firefighters and people were all displaced and the towns burned. But it chose to go back into the burned out area, not mm-hmm. people areas. 
And also the, there's there's data coming out. I'm not sure if it's published yet or not, but um, you know the one of the big arguments hunters use is that well we ha- we have to hunt them to keep them scared of us. And you go well wait a minute. There's a study out of California again where they haven't been hunted for over 40 years, where they put cam- uh, cameras on on kills that cougars have made, and then they play sounds. They play background sounds of birds and owls and stuff like that. And the cougar just might, you know, is happily eating away at its food. They then switch that sound to people talking, and that animal leaves right away. Wow, that's they, interesting. They're scared of us, as they should be. <laughs> and this is after, I can say, after 40 years of never being hunted. And so uh, this demonstrates that indeed they don't. They now, don't. Are, are wolves similar? Wolves are totally different. They, they tend to run their prey down, and so they tend to uh, need more open areas. Although they're fairly successful, and, and this is what people don't realize, is that um, we, you know, we don't have wolves in most of the east, but we do have them in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, heavily forested like the rest of the east, um, as wolves, as 3,000 wolves. Uh, and they feed on deer. And so there's... Um, they tend to do good in um, open areas, but obviously they can do fairly well in, in forested areas too. And so, uh, but they tend to, again, uh, run their prey down, they hunt in packs, and so they, uh, they take a totally different approach. So we've got um, a little time here left. Let's talk about the Cougar Rewilding Foundation and its mission and, and what your, your role in this is. Well, the Cougar Rewilding Foundation started out um, as a group of people who uh, wanted to see if they could verify the presence of cougars uh, in the east. There have been all of these sightings and, and uh, reports of cougars that almost sound like the east is being overwhelmed. And so a group of people um, got together and decided to try to, to uh, investigate these, these sightings. And what they did was they you know, interviewed people. They, they put in a, lot, a tremendous amount of uh, legwork over the years. And everyone, except for a couple of, there were a couple of verified instances, and these were probably past had been released. A couple of ver- um, every one of the, the reports, the sightings were false. And so eventually, um, when, it was about that time when they, they were about ready to give up the, the, the chase, looking for cougars is when I joined them. Um, and when we decided to, as a group, to switch emphasis from trying to to um, see if they're there, to see if we can bring them back. We changed our, we, we changed our name to the Cougar Rewilding Foundation, and um, the, uh, our emphasis is to, um, to try to convince the powers to be, the, uh, the populace, that indeed we do need these animals uh, from the, uh, to come back, or to be brought back to the East. Uh, we downplay any idea that they're going to move into the east on their own. As I mentioned, the Great Plains has proven to be a, more of a burial ground for dispersing cougars than a, than a conduit for their movement. Um, and so the only alternative is to actually bring these animals in. And so we, we do a lot of work um, giving presentations, trying to build public support for um, the reasons why we, we need to bring cougars back again, uh, for the health of the eastern forest. Um, uh, we even talk about it ec- economic reasons. Um, the idea that uh, when you see 
millions of dollars, new dollars come into Yellowstone because of wolves. Uh, the idea that if we could, if people from New York City, which is just um, a half a day's drive to Adirondack Park, which is in upstate New York and the biggest park in the, in the east, uh, could go there to um, either hear wolves or see cougar tracks, it, the amount of new revenue to that area is just incredible. And that could happen across the whole east. And so, well, and then, then of course, to me, the biggest threat that is emerging threat to the east is the re return of, of elk. It is, to me, it, it is an ecological crime to bring back the prey without the predator. And that's what they've done. They've brought back elk, and the elk are increasing. There's now several thousand, I think maybe over 10,000 elk in the east and growing exponentially. Uh, within 10 years, they will be more of a problem than the, um, than the deer. And so any, any agency that, or any group that, um, and, I, and I purposely um, will mention the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, who proposes to bring back these animals without their predators, is committing an ecological crime. Well, that seems to be true across the continental U.S. and, you know, the parallel where I work in Africa as well. When we keep fo focusing on the ungulates and the prey species, they're called prey because they had predators. So when we don't have the predators in this ecosystem, as John was saying, you know, either from the top down or the bottom up, we get severe trophic cascades and consequences. So, um, John, thank you. This was a fascinating conversation. And uh, unfortunately, we're out of time today. So, um It'd be great to talk to you some more, and your book is coming out, a new one. Um, uh, the name of it is... Guardians of the Forest. Guardians of the Forest, and your previous book, uh, Phantoms of the Prairie, uh, which I have read, both fabulous books. And uh, look up Cougar Rewilding Foundation on the web and their Facebook page. And, and consider joining. And Yeah, consider joining because we need these carnivores. And as John had said, you know, there's a lot of false sightings of cougars. So that's kind of an excitement that people want to see them. So that, that could be a mental shift to um, help bring them back because we certainly do need them. So, John, thank you for your time. This has been great. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. And uh, meanwhile, folks, step out into your wild world. And if you're out here in the Rocky Mountains, you can possibly see a mountain lion. So until next week, our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>